So as we prepare for Easter, we are on a road of grace. Um, Easter is a great time to understand the power of grace. And I'm not so sure if we totally get the word grace. And as we understand this word, it's going to help us to better um, understand uh, Easter and to be better to, uh, to value Easter. Well, uh, we learned in week one that grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness and favor of God. So let me say that again. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness and favor of God. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn grace. It is a free gift. It is a free gift, like a birthday present. There's nothing that you did that you were able to earn that that birthday present, okay? Uh, You were born, but you had nothing to do with that. (laughs) <laughs> right? And so uh, it is just like a, a birthday present. Grace is a free gift. And we learn in, in week one, uh, to help us better understand grace, we use the story of the woman caught in adultery and how they were accusers who surrounded her with stones, ready to stone her. And Jesus was in the middle of all that. And he, be, he stood between the woman and those who were accusing her. And what, he, what did he do? He did not join the accusers. He stooped down to the ground, wrote something in the ground, and whatever he wrote caused them to drop their stones, and he left. He is a God who stoops, and while he was there stooping, he looked into the eyes of the woman at her level and said, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? There's many people in this world who, who are living uh, with with shame and guilt and regret, and they're taking the stones themselves and just knocking them aside the head, and because they're listening to the voice of the accuser, not the advocate. See, Jesus in this story was the advocate. He wasn't the accuser. And the advocate, what he does, is he uses conviction. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction helps you to understand what is right and what is wrong. With conviction, you can have confession. It allows you to have some confession of that sin and then repentance, which means to walk away from that sin. And the, the accuser uh, provides condemnation. Jesus said, I didn't come to the world to condemn you, but that the world will be saved. So the accuser uses con- condemnation. Condemnation breeds regret and shame and, and guilt and so who are you listening to? Where are your accusers? Just like Jesus asked. And, um, and so that's what we learned in week one, that, that grace is a God who stoops. Last week, we learned that grace is a God who steps in. We looked at the, the story of Saul before he was turned, his name was turned to Paul. Saul was a, a Pharisee, a young rising star in the Pharisaical uh, council, and he was on his way to, uh, to do something really bad to some Christians in Damascus, and uh, Jesus knew about it. Uh, D- Jesus had already uh, risen from the dead. He was uh, actually in heaven, but he decided, you know what, I'm going to beam myself down uh, and and stop this dude from doing any more damage uh, to my bride. And so he stopped Saul, and he stepped in, and he provided grace from, do, from Paul doing lots of other things. And so uh, Paul went on to, to write most of the New Testament and uh, started churches, won thousands of people to the Lord, and uh, he was a guy that, in, that was just this close to wrecking his entire life. But God 
stepped in to grace. It happens with us as well. Uh, we, we sense God is stepping in before we make a, a decision, before we're planning something in our head and we're ready for it to, to, uh, to go into action. Jesus will step in and by his grace, and it may not feel good at first when he steps in. We may feel like, oh yeah, that's, that's yeah, that doesn't feel good. Uh, I was caught, you know, whatever, but it's so much better than us going through with that action. So God is a God of grace, by he, he, and he steps in with his grace and his power. Uh, this week, we're going to look at an attribute of God that you may not have heard before, you may not have even thought about. You know, God is a God of, of, of majesty. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He's filled with holiness and light. He is a creator of all things, and he reigns on his glorious heavenly throne. Yet there is something that God does that you may not know. It's mentioned once in all of the Bible, and this attribute is hidden away in the most least read book in all the Bible, according to, according to surveys by, by, by believers who read the Bible. This book in the Bible is the most least read book in all of the Bible, and it's a book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a book and it's all based upon the prophecies of Zephaniah. Zephaniah has this in chapter three, there's only three chapters. In Zephaniah, it has this, if you follow along with me. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's talking to the nation of Israel, the Hebrews. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So what is a characteristic that is only listed once in all of Scripture? It's the fact that God sings over us. He sings over us. Can you imagine God singing over us? Can you imagine God singing? I mean, he would, he would totally win American Idol in the voice, hands down. All right? I wonder what kind of voice, you know, he's got. He's kind of have a big operatic voice, you know, or got a, like a lot of soul in the voice. Maybe, maybe he can go country, a little country, you know? We don't know. But maybe it's, it's a kind of style that sort of just unique to God. But it shows that God sings over us. Now, before you sit here and say, man, that's great. I'm glad that God sings over us. You know, Frank, there's a lot of great um, attributes and characteristics in that, in that verse. There's lots of things that are good. The Lord is in your midst. He's a mighty one. He's glad over us. He's loving and all this stuff. But Frank, you don't understand. I am living with something in my life that I'm not too happy about. In fact, if anyone knew, I'm, I'm just really quite shameful of it. Or, you know, Frank, I, I know of some people who are really caught and junk. And so this positive stuff, they're not going to relate to. Well, let me tell you the context of this verse. Because if you read Zephaniah, three chapters, if you read Zephaniah, you'll understand that it is a book, a prophecy about God's judgment on the Hebrews. And so Judah was uh, the southern 
uh, kingdom. He had Israel, then he had Judah. It's all part of the Hebrews. And so uh, Zephaniah prophesied during the, during the reign of King Josiah. Love that name. At a time when Judah was deep into several generations of a lifestyle of sin. Now, now King Josiah was actually a good king, and he actually feared the Lord. He removed the false uh, gods and the altars, and he, and he called the people to renew their covenant and to walk in the fear of the Lord. But idolatry and the sinful lifestyle had taken such a strong hold of the people that they were hard to shake that. So God spoke his message of judgment on the people through Zephaniah. It's in the words of the prophet, we hear plans for God. God is actually going to wipe out thousands of people in the, in, the same, in the same book. And he's going to send some in exile to a foreign land. Yet in the middle of judgment, in the middle of being caught in sin, in the middle of a lifestyle of, of shame and sin, God wanted to share hope. He wanted to give hope. How many of us in our sin and shame when we're caught in things, or if you know people who are living in, 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 in that with some bad choices and trying to overcome them, don't they want words of hope? Yes, they do. And so that's what God shared in chapter three of, of Zephaniah. So maybe this message of hope is something that you need and we all could, we all could use. Maybe this verse right here, Zephaniah 3.17, is a verse that we can, you can actually put to memory, and we can dissect it a little bit. Maybe you need this as a hope in your life. You know, God is saying this. God is saying, look, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. It's okay. I, I, I know that you've made some bad choices, but it's Okay. There's people out there who need to be in here, in the church, hearing that it's okay. I know you've made some bad choices, but we're going to get through this. Yes, there's going to be some consequences, but understand this, there is hope. You know, it really kind of depends on our view of God. What is your view of God? Some, some people think God is this, this grumpy old man who just, you know, wants to have his way, and um, he, he doesn't really care about our, our shame and our guilt. In fact, he, he wants to use his power to scare people, to make people walk in line. Maybe that's your view of God. Although most people wouldn't want to say it out loud, but deep down, even many believers think of God as the one who is out to get me. The one who is out to get me. That he's waiting for you to mess up and to, and to spoil his great plans, as if we could do that. Perhaps this comes from a particular teaching or maybe, maybe a bad experience with, the, uh, with church growing up or other believers. But either way, this is a bad view of God. So when you sin, and sin in such, so when you do sin, and you sin in such a way that you feel punishment is coming your direction, God wants you to know a few things. So, you feel like that there's coming your way some consequences of some actions. God wants you to know something, and it's all in this simple verse in Zephaniah. 
There's great truths in here in Zephaniah. The first one is this. God is personal. God is personal. Look there at at, uh, the first part of Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God. Your God. You know, it, it had been a long time since the Hebrews had abandoned their God for other gods. Because of years of neglect and, 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 uh, and abandonment of their God had taken a toll on them. They had become insensitive to the voice of God. They didn't hear the voice of God. And so he wasn't really their God. But God is saying, look, I am your God. In the midst, when you feel like you're far from God, God, is, God wants to whisper to you, and God wants to say to you, look, I am your God. I'm the one who created you. Especially if you are a believer and, and, and you come to Christ as Savior. Jesus is saying, look, I'm your Savior. I know you feel far from me, and I know you've made some, some bad decisions. But know this, I want you back. I want you back. I'm your Savior. I'm your God. God is a personal God. He's your God even in the mess of this life. When you're out of separate God, it's a, it's a little stranger here, him personally described as your God, but he is. And it's almost like <laughs> sometimes we have this view of God that when we mess up bad, he, wanted dis- he wants to disown us. Sometimes Susan and I do this with our kids. Like our kids do something bad or stupid and make a bad choice, like, no, that's your son. That's your son. You need to talk to your son. Parents, have you ever did that? Sort of disown them just for a little bit, just, I mean, just for like a few seconds, all right, a few minutes. Right, hey, that's your daughter. Your daughter's the one making that decision. You need to go talk to your daughter. But God doesn't do that. Even no matter how, how much you mess up, God is there saying, look, I am your God. And Jesus is saying, look, I am your Savior. So he is, a, he is a personal God. The Lord your God is in your midst, right there in the first part of that verse. He's in the midst. He is a present God. He is a personal God, and he is a present God. He is in our midst. The Hebrews neglected God, but he never neglected them. If you feel like you, you neglected God, put God on the shelf, know this, that God has never neglected you, and he never will. Even with coming judgment, God reminded them that he will be with them. And it's, it's like it's, it's parenting. You know, if our kids make a bad choice, we don't, just, we don't go lock them in the basement and lock the door and leave the house for a few days and let them just, just understand what they've done. No, that would be neglect. We'd get arrested for that, all right? And no, we don't do that. We, we you know, scare them with that, but we'd never do that. But, but so, so what we do is we say, okay, go to your room and just the rest of the day or, or the next couple of hours, just go to your room. But we don't leave the house. We're still there. We're still in the house, you know? We're still on our, on our property. That's, that's what God does to us. 
When, when we make a mistake, he didn't just lock us in a dungeon and leave us and forsake us and neglect us. He's still with us. He's still in the house. So he is a personal God, and he is a present God. Next thing is God is powerful. In that next, uh, in that next phrase, a mighty one who will save. He, Zephaniah's reminded him that their personal and present God will save them from their own destruction, despite their moral corruption, pride, and wickedness. And God did save a remnant of people. He didn't wipe them all out. He saved a remnant of people. He sent some off in exile and then brought them back home many years later. But he, he saved them, and he is the one who, can, who is mighty to save. You know, this reminded, us, reminded me of, of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Because of our sin, we deserve eternal death. But Jesus took our place. Jesus knew, he knew no sin, but he became sin for us. It says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you feel like you don't deserve happiness because of your sin, when you feel like you don't deserve God's favor because of your sin, when you feel like you don't uh, deserve healing because of your sin, when you feel like you don't deserve love because of your sin, God is there, Jesus is there with full power to wipe away those lies from your mind, from your heart. He wants to rule and reign in your life with power. Do we let him, do we allow him to have full control of our life? Do we allow him to be the mighty one who saves? So he is a personal God and he's a present God and he is also a powerful God. Next, we see in the next phrase, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with gladness. So God takes pleasure in you. You know, the Bible is filled with rejoicing. There's lots of places throughout scripture where it talks about rejoicing, rejoicing with God, and, and rejoicing over all that he's done for us. In, in Philippians uh, chapter four, verse four, uh, God calls us to rejoice all the time. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. There's not many times that we, we see uh, the writers repeat themselves, but they're like, look, you need to understand. The Lord wants us to rejoice. Rejoice in what? In who? The Lord. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Oh, by the way, again, I'm gonna say it. Rejoice, rejoice always in our life. And I know that's, that's really difficult at times, in the good times and the bad times, on the mountaintops, in the valleys, when your team wins, when your team loses, rejoice. You know, when your March Madness bracket looks like mine, rejoice, it's okay, no big deal. Rejoice in the Lord. And so, What's amazing about this verse is that Paul wrote this, Rejoice in the Lord always, when he was in prison. He was in prison, and he was telling us to rejoice in the Lord. If I'm ever in jail, 
I'm not going to feel like rejoicing. Yay, I'm in jail. Yay, I get to eat jail food. No, I'm not rejoicing. But Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. God is telling you today to rejoice even though you may be in a prison of shame, a prison of depression, or a prison of loneliness because of the choices you may have made. And you're sitting here saying, you know, I'm doing good right now, Frank. Hey, what I'm speaking to you right now, this truth that I'm speaking to you right now are things that you can take and use later on because there's gonna be some times when you're gonna feel like you're gonna need this hope because you're living in a prison of shame, a depression or loneliness because of the choices you may have made. You may say it's impossible to rejoice, especially when there's no one to rejoice with. May I dare tell you there is someone who is rejoicing with you, and it's right there in Zephaniah, we just read. There's someone rejoicing, and here's a powerful thought. If God is calling you to rejoice always, even during the bad times, that God himself is doing the same thing. God is not asking you to do something that he is not willing to do himself. He is always rejoicing over you, even when you don't deserve it. So what's God's view of this verse in Philippians 4.4? When it says rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice. Here's God's view. Rejoice in, put your name, always. And again, I say rejoice. God is telling himself, rejoice in Frank Bennett always. Again, I say rejoice. There are times I'm like, I don't, I don't deserve for God to be rejoicing over me. But Zephaniah says he does. Put your name in there. Rejoice in your name. Always. And again, I say rejoice. If you look at God's view there in, in Zephaniah, um, if, if we see this, I will rejoice over, and put your name, with gladness. Because that, that, that part of the phrase in, in Zephaniah 3.17, he will rejoice over you with gladness. If he's going to rejoice over you with gladness, he's going to do it always, and he's going to do it personally and presently and powerfully. And he is going to rejoice over you. He is he takes great delight in you, and he takes pleasure in you. Now, this is, this is, this is very powerful to understand this, that this, per, this God of all creation who wants to be a personal God, he's your God, he wants to be a present God in your midst, he wants to be a powerful God in your life, he's mighty to save, and he takes great pleasure in you. That is powerful. We can stop there, but there's more things that God wants you and I to know. Look at the next one, next phrase. He will quiet you by his love. He will quiet you by his love. God is a God of peace. God is peace. He will quiet you with, his, with your love. If you've ever spent any time with prison in inmates, 
prison inmates would tell you there's one thing that's really interesting about jail, about prison. It's very noisy. It's very noisy. 24-7, there's prisoners yelling from their jail cells at all hours of the night. And it's just this constant state of, of noise in, in prison. There's no peace in that prison. If you're locked in your own prison of sinful actions, God wants to quiet you with his love. God wants to quiet you with his love. There's one thing we can all agree, uh, I would think, about love. One characteristic of love is love is never loud. Love is never loud. I don't scream at my wife that I love her. That'd be, that'd be awful. I love you, you know. I don't do that. Here's what I do. I go right up next to her, and I whisper in her ear, I love you. And then, then I throw in a few other kind of spicy words that are kind of make her giggle and laugh, and that's all cool. But he, here, here's one thing. She's learned to, to enjoy those quick little seconds, those quick little moments of those quick little messages, those quiet words of love. She never, ever pulls away from me. Because if I'm, if I'm coming up next to her, say if she's in the kitchen and working on some things or, you know, helping kids and she's distracted, I'll just distract her even more. And I'll come up next to her, whisper in her ear, and she never pulls away. Why? Because she puts herself in a position to hear those words of love. And it almost quiets her, and she's like, you know what? Thanks for that little break. It quiets her, quiets her, her soul. She positions herself to know what's coming. Are you tired of your world and your past screaming at you? You're tired of your past screaming at you? Then you need to position yourself to hear the quiet words of God. The quiet words of God. You may say, Frank, my, my world is, is anything but quiet. Anything but quiet. But if you position yourself to know that God is speaking to you, then you will put everything else aside. It's kind of like when you're, when you're riding in the car and your favorite song comes on and there's other people in the car, what are you gonna do? Hey, y'all be quiet, be quiet. This is my song. This is my song. And you turn that song up. And man, you roll the windows down or push the windows down. What do you don't roll? I don't know, what do you call it now? You know. But the windows go down and you crank it up and you're singing. Why? Because you have uh, recognized your favorite song and you put yourself in a position to hear that favorite song. So, when you have no peace, you need to position yourself to hear from the Prince of Peace because God is peace. He will quiet you with his love. God is personal. God is present. God is all-powerful. God, God takes pleasure in you, 
and God is peace. What an awesome display of his grace. But he's not done. Just one verse, Zephaniah 3.17, there's so much in there. He's not done. It says, he will exalt over you with loud singing. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God performs with singing. God performs with singing. He performs over you. God quiets us with his love and then sings at the top of his lungs. God quiets us with his love and then sings at the top of his lungs. Isn't that awesome? He wants, to hear, he wants you to hear him. He wants to make sure that you hear every word. Much like when our favorite song, we crank it up. We get this picture of God performing a song for you. Now, this may make you feel uncomfortable, someone singing over you. If you ever have people sing over you, I mean, think about it. You're in a Mexican restaurant, and you're wearing this big sombrero hat on, and all of the staff is coming there, and they're singing the song in English and in Spanish and whatever, and they're singing the song in the whole place like erupts, and you're over there looking goofy with this hat on, and, and it's like, it's, it makes you feel uncomfortable. It's awkward. It's awkward. Many of you may not have been, when is the last time you've been sung over? When is the last time someone has sung to you? Wives, this is a great time to nudge your husband right now. When is the last time someone sang over you? When is the last time someone sang a song to you? You know, my wife has a great voice. I love to hear her sing. But I don't, I mean, she's not one to just break out in song. You know, we, we don't have, it's not like, you know, Beauty and the Beast where we just start breaking out in song to each other and, you know, and everything. But, but I, I've written some songs to her, so when I proposed to her, I actually sang a song to her. But it's been a while since I've sang over her. But in my life, the last person that I can remember singing over me was my mother. As a child, being held in the arms of my mom, singing over me. And, and, and my mom has a great voice. She plays piano and accordion, and you know, and, and she, she taught me a little bit of piano, and she's very musically gifted. But there's one song that I remember that I know she sang to me as a baby, and then as I got older, and not older like a teenager, but as a child, and held in, in her arms, she would sing this, this song, and you may have heard this song. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. And if that mockingbird don't sing, Mama's gonna buy you a diamond ring. And if that diamond ring turns brass, Mama's gonna buy you a looking glass. And if that looking glass gets broke, Mama's gonna buy you a billy goat. 
And if that billy goat runs away, mama's gonna buy you another someday. I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember her singing that voice. She's here today. And I remember her singing that over me. And the reason why she was able to sing over me, because I was dependent on her. I was in her arms. She was holding me. And I was in that position of dependence and waiting to hear from her. And she sang sweet words over me. That's God. That's God. He wants to put you in a position in his arms where he's singing over us. It's time you get back to those loving arms of God as a child, dependent on his personal touch and his presence, his power, his pleasure in you, and his peace so he can perform a love song ready to quiet your crazy world. This is grace. He's singing and performing a song of grace. He wants to sing over you.